Welcome to the July 15, 2007 podcast of Reverend Liz and Friends at the Unitarian Universalist Church of Silver Spring. My story goes back to when I was in about the third grade and awake in bed very, very, very late at night one night. It must have been nigh on to 11 p.m. I couldn't go to sleep, and so I was thinking deep thoughts. I followed an untried path of deep thoughts. I couldn't seem to stop, and when I arrived at my conclusion, I had terrified myself. I raced downstairs to the kitchen where my father was loading the dishwasher and threw myself into his arms and offered a distraught, yet fairly sophisticated, for a third grader, existentialist plaint. Daddy, how can you load the dishwasher when you're going to die? (laughs) If you think about it, That's not a bad summary of the human dilemma of living in the face of death. And when I had calmed down enough to hear his response, he gave a pretty good answer, which also has a certain larger potential. He said it very kindly, very caringly, very attentively. Well, honey, it's true that I am going to die someday. We all die someday. But that's not going to be for a long, long time. And in the meantime, the dishwasher needs to be loaded. (laughs) Early in my time here at Silver Spring, my very last pastoral meeting with anyone before leaving for summer vacation was with David Stevenson. His brother had died, and he wanted to talk about life and death and life after death. It was the first time in my ministry anyone had ever actually asked me what I think happens when we die. We talked at length and learned we disagreed. I don't usually volunteer this, but having been asked outright, I told him that though I had read numerous theological sources positing some kind of life after death, from Buddhist and Hindu writings on the wheel of samsara, to Jonathan Livingston's seagull, wherein a seagull shows us the many stages of literal and spiritual ascension that begin after life. I believe, uncomfortably, even fearfully, that nothing happens after we die, that we're just done. This fairly grim belief is not very comforting to me. I really don't think that's how it ought to be. I sometimes can't decide how it ought to be, whether we ought to be embodied after death because of all the bliss of sensation that our bodies give us, or disembodied because of all the insecurities and shame that they give us. I can't decide whether everyone should be redeemed and sharing in afterlife equally, Regardless of the possible negative aspects of their living in this life, do I really want to meet Hitler there? But if everyone doesn't get in, who decides? 
You see where that goes. And by the way, what happens to the ones who don't get in? Is there some version of hell for the anathema? Sometimes I have wondered if hell actually would have the advantage that at least you're still there. Burning, but still there. Non-extinguished. No pun intended. The experiences of people living with agonizing pain show us that most people would rather not exist at length in that circumstance. So my reasoning regarding hell turns out to be largely specious, but it also demonstrates how dreadful, utter, unending oblivion can seem. I can't decide whether all animals would share our afterlife, though surely some would. If everyone and everything is there, what's different and why? Not that that's necessarily a bad thing for everyone and everything to be there or then, but it's confusing. Would we be distinct or merged with each other or something in between? If I am something very different after death, how will I recognize myself? How will I relate to the memories of this incarnation? How will I recognize all those I have loved and lost and longed to meet again on the other side? Will I have memories? If I don't have memories, how can I be me? If there is another side, why the heck can't we go back and reassure people? Think what immeasurable anguish it might save. Or is that exactly what has sometimes happened? Visitations, white lights, and figures at the end of dark tunnels hovering above our own bodies on operating tables the whole nine yards, and it's just the billions upon billions of scoffing skeptics like me who have denied the astounding efforts of the dead to save us our anguish. David told me he'd done a lot of reading, including literature focusing on out-of-body experiences and near-death and documented paranormal incidents. And at this point, he believed that death was like a door opening. And you walk through, and there's a lot on the other side of that door that you couldn't access before. There is a lot, and it's different, and can't be perceived or expressed by we who are living on this side of the door. We had a fascinating discussion. And at the end of our exchange on this lofty and intimate topic, somehow we ended up laying a bet. I honestly can't remember who suggested it. David bet me $50 that there was life after death. And I bet him $50 that there wasn't pointing out that I would never be so happy to lose a bet in my life as I would be to lose this one. We figured it would be difficult for either of us to come back from the beyond to prove our point, particularly for me. (laughs) We further noted that if either of us did manage it, it would likely be only for petty vindication. Since whichever one of us won, it seemed unlikely that $50 would be a meaningful entity in our circumstances. 
It's not an unusual exchange except for the bet. But as many of you know, David died that summer. Unexpectedly and way too young from a stroke. Knowing his sense of humor, I honestly think he'd come back and haunt me about that $50 if he could. Corinne, his wife, was in the first service and she was like, yes. He hasn't. But the fact that he hasn't doesn't, of course, mean that he was wrong. It may just mean that he can't. Or that he is way too enlightened now, having passed through that opened door, to indulge in such silliness. I hope that's it. We all have our own ideas, however uncertain or even unwelcome they are, about what the answer is. I actually have lots of proof about how much you all care, because last year when I did my question and answer sermon, wherein I passed out slips of paper and you all wrote down questions you wanted me to answer on the fly, and then they were all brought up here and I just unfolded them and read them and answered them, whatever they were. When I went through all the folded papers that I hadn't gotten to, so many of them treated this topic that I was amazed that I hadn't just by virtue of the odds unfolded one of them during the service. Amazed and grateful, because this is not an issue one wants to treat off the cuff. Why do I believe there is nothing for us after we die? Even as I write this, I'm not sure I understand the answer. But it seems rooted in the insight of Thomas Lynch, undertaker, poet, and essayist, who said this in remarks to President Bush's Council on Bioethics. My experience with bodies and the parts of bodies over the past 35 years has taught me that our dead are precious to us because ours is a species, for better or for worse, that has learned to deal with death, the idea of the thing, by dealing with our dead, the thing itself. For me, rightly or wrongly, the dead do define death, because in this world and in this life, even though the organic connection between psyches and flesh seems miraculous and is little understood, it also seems essential. The mind-body continuum is indivisible, however much the two elements may sometimes seem to diverge. We think about our bodies sometimes as if we are not them, and they are not us. Experiences in dreams or through such art as books or film or music seem to transport us out of our bodies. Certainly we are transported out of our awareness of them all the time. But those are all illusory experiences. Our bodies not only hold us, they are us. And they are all that allow us those transported experiences, eyes to see, ears to hear, brains to absorb and focus and consider art and dreams. We constantly influence our bodies, intentionally and not, by what we think and feel. And our bodies, intentionally and not, constantly affect what we think and feel in return. Certainly there is evidence that we can sometimes control this relationship through insight and practice, like the Tibetan Buddhist monks who use the Tummo meditation technique to radically change their body temperature. But see, 
Even those sentences are illusory, as if the we is not the same as our bodies, as if our mind is not our brain, as if it should be so impossible to lift our temperature the way we might lift our arm, as if our souls are not part and parcel of these vessels that define and protect and defend us and ultimately betray us, or so it feels, by sickening and aging and weakening and dying. So this is what I believe with no proof other than the most mundane realities of this world and certainly no joy in it. And though it seems a fairly simple position to take, it actually is not and does not even offer a cruel but useful clarity in encountering much about the end of life. When is someone dead? It's a harder question than it used to be. In the four to six minutes when they have no heartbeat or breath or pulse but are technically retrievable, are they dead? When someone is in a persistent vegetative state and their psyche is gone and their body is a shell, when the organs are being harvested, the questions are dreadful, agonizing, and they are inevitable when we encounter death. They are questions many of us will have to answer one day. In her book, The Year of Magical Thinking, about the time following the sudden death of her beloved husband of 40 years, Joan Didion notices in her apartment building log that the paramedics were in her apartment working on her husband for 45 minutes, more than twice as long as she had thought. She thinks, if they were here that long, does it mean he was alive? She asks a doctor she knows, and his response is, Sometimes they'll work that long. She writes, it was a while before I realized that this in no way addressed the question. In the end, someone is dead when people stop trying to save them. When they take themselves and their instruments and their hope away and call it. When I was a hospital chaplain, I was present for some attempts to save a person to recall them to life. And it took a reassuringly long time when the teams gave up, much, much longer than four to six minutes. Considering that any of us or our loved ones may well end up in such hands, it's good to know that they don't let anyone go lightly. And when they do finally give up, that is all that immediately changes. That and the position of the hands on the clock that they were checking as they worked. Perhaps Alice Walker's mother is right. She must have been a wise woman to have raised such a daughter, and we will see each other in the morning. But for myself, what it feels we must prepare for is more the ebbing of the tide that Anne Morrow Lindbergh refers to, the endless rush and withdrawal of life and the profound validity of that cycle. I do not question its validity. It is its justice that I cannot find. So much is lost, lost. Our hearts break sometimes in moments of apprehension of how much death has stolen and rested away 
and broken, how often in pain and in fear, in the massive history and experience of humankind. The awesome span of death is like stars in the sky. It is no accident the ancient Greeks used those stars and constellations as the resting place of so many of those who peopled their history and legends. I do not seek eternal life. Everyone deserves their turn on this planet that already cannot support humankind as we choose to live now. I would ask for some other existence after this, that all of us would continue somehow, and also that we might know each other again somehow. But I do not think I will get what I ask for. So though I, like May Sarton, am not ready to die, though I am behind her in that I have not learned to trust death, I am setting myself that long task because I have trusted life, even though it has not been all I expected or hoped for. And I don't want to have to rely on distractions or the other happy drugs and gas life offers to enter that place of peace. Having spent 30 years since the night of the dishwasher in fear, I wish to move forward toward letting go of this dread which haunts my life as much as it sweetens it. Like Sarton, I wish to turn my face to the sea because whether I will or no, I too shall go where tides replace time and there are no farewells and would wish to do it with praise for life's mercies even for the austere demands, certainly for the light, and also for the darkness. Amen.